is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. And in God's perfect timing, we've arrived at the fourth of the character traits of those people in whom God's Holy Spirit is working. Patience, or as it is in some translations, long-suffering. Now, someone has said that the greatest thing about learning patience is that you can use it to really annoy the people that are trying to annoy you. So, I, I hope that's not why you're here this morning. That's probably not the right reason for patience. We want to learn about patience because we believe that this is a good gift from a loving Father who will increase it in us as we walk in the Spirit. And so that we might be a people known for patient endurance, we're going to study in James chapter 5 this morning. James chapter 5, I would ask you to follow along as I read verses 7 to 11. James 5, 7 to 11. We give your attention to the Word of God. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be judged or condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Father, thank you for this promise of compassion and mercy. We begin this morning, God, by confessing that we are wont to forget these great things. We are wont to get so discouraged and so worked up and so over-anxious and full of fretting and worry and impatience because we forget how compassionate and merciful you are. Please remind us of that this morning, that we might not grumble against you or against any of your people, but we might be filled with the joy of patient endurance and steadfast hopefulness. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and God's people say, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, of course, patience is something you admire in the driver behind you. But it's something you do not want in the driver in front of you, right? (laughs) There's just something about patience which leads us to demand more of it from others than we are willing to give ourselves. And of course, we live, as everyone knows, I'm sure, in an instant everything culture. This is the first time in the history of man that if you were hungry... You could go and get a McWhopper in 30 seconds and have it exactly your way. 
Just think of the labor and difficulty it would have been a thousand years ago to go get a steak sandwich. It is a lot of difficulty, and now everything is instant, and because of that, in fact, I was thinking about this as I typed, when I began church planting out of what used to be Trinity PCA and planted harvest, Pastor Phil and I shared an office and that was the first time I'd ever seen email. It was a brand new technology. I even checked on the internet to see when it was invented to see if Pastor Phil and I were just way behind the curve. But it wasn't. 1993 was when uh, AOL opened. And I moved uh, to Omaha in 1994. And so we were, we were like right on the cutting edge. We had one of those old CompuServe addresses that was you know, 10793281.476948 at CompuServe.com or whatever it was. Nobody could remember it. Nobody ever emailed us. Now email's not even fast enough, is it? You've got to have instant messaging. I was thinking about this. My Outlook program, I've told it to be sure and check the messages every five minutes. And even sometimes that's not fast enough, either, is it? We go up and we push send and receive because it's not fast enough to get something every five minutes. Everything's got to be instant. And because of that, friends, because this is the air in which we breathe, we do not naturally value patience. But it seems to me, both from history and the Scriptures, that the kingdom of God does not advance apart from patient endurance. I've been thinking on this actually for well over a year when about a year ago, Pastor Kaiser sent me a sermon he preached on, let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. When I listened to his sermon, I had to confess, my tendency is to give up too often and too easily. But I would ask you to note well in that verse that the season of reaping is not the same as the season of harvest. We sow in the spring, but we do not reap in the spring, do we? We must wait until the fall. Patient endurance with steadfast Hopefulness are necessary simply because that's the way God has made His world. We may find fault with it, but ultimately we will find failure from it unless we submit to it. I want to thank publicly Richard for your prayer on Monday morning at the prayer meeting. I don't even know if you remember, but as soon as you said it, I took out my notepad and wrote it down, Lord... We are good at beginning prayer, but not necessarily at preserving, persevering prayer. That's so right, brother. Didn't Jesus specifically teach one of his parables? It says right in the text, he taught us this parable to teach us to persevere in prayer and not give up. And yet, we do lose heart. And we lose heart because we do not know the patient endurance which God requires of those who would harvest in His kingdom. One day, Pastor Philip Brooks, who was a New England Puritan kind of pastor, was pacing back and forth in his study like a, like a caged lion. And one of his friends came in and said, What's wrong, Pastor Brooks? What's wrong? 
And he said, I'm in a hurry. But God is not. (laughs) I've felt that same way. I bet you have. And yet, I'm sure Pastor Kaiser can testify to this too, the near universal testimony of the church is that you have to have patience if you're ever going to see God work. William Carey labored seven years before the first convert in Burma. Adoniram Judson, seven years before the first convert in his ministry. In Western Africa, 14 years before the first convert was received into the church. In New Zealand, nine years. In Tahiti, 16. John Bunyan was a faithful preacher of the gospel. And don't you know, many of his congregation, just like when Pastor Kaiser went on his mission trip, We gathered together and prayed for a safe return. Don't you know that many in his congregation got on their knees with tears, pleading with John Bunyan for God to release him from jail. And yet, because he preached the gospel, the door remained locked for 12 years. And surely we would say with his wife and kids with his congregation. Lord, why would you do these things? All John Bunyan wanted to do was to preach the gospel. All he wanted to do was to tell people about Jesus. And look at what you've done. And yet, except for the Bible sitting in your lap this morning, never in the English language has any book been published as much as Pilgrim's Progress. More people know about the Christian life. Because John Bunyan learned through patient endurance and steadfast hopefulness what the work of the Lord looks like. So how do we get that? How do we get more patience? Well, we're going to use the same outline each week. I do that for a couple of reasons. One, to give some continuity since I preach irregularly. But the other is, it's a visual clue for you that every one of the fruit is related. In fact, Travis has his Greek text over there. If you turn over to Galatians 5 and you look at the beginning of uh, 5.22, the uh, word for fruit is karpos, which, uh, as my children uh, will be glad to tell you, is singular. One fruit, many characteristics, and so one outline (laughs) for many different kinds of fruit. And our outline begins at the same place each week. We must embrace a biblical definition of patience. We must embrace a biblical definition of patience. Now, in the the King James, both the New and the Old King James, over in Galatians 5, you might have memorized it as... How how is that memorized? How is that word? The fruit of the Spirit is not patience in in Galatians 5, is it? Does anybody know what it is? It's long-suffering, right? That's the exact same Greek word there in Galatians 5 as it is in our text, James 5, where the New King James translates it all four times as patience. The word in both texts is macrothemia, which is unimportant, except for the fact I want you to see it's two different words, macro. You know what macro is. It's the opposite of a microscope for seeing little things. A macro is something that's really big, and thumia is anger. So it is someone who is big or long before they get angry. A person who is patient 
does not have a short fuse. And it it came to mean patience because it's a person who's not short-tempered. In other words, this. A person walking with the Spirit of God takes a lot of grief without getting upset. Either with God or with other people. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says this about macrothemia. Patience is often hard to gain and to maintain. Well, that's an understatement, isn't it? But in Romans 15.5, God is called the God of patience as being able to grant that grace to those who look to Him and depend upon Him for it. It is in reliance on God and on acceptance of His will with trust in His goodness, wisdom, and faithfulness that we are enabled to endure and to hope steadfastly. So let me give you a definition that I would propose for patience, and then we'll just walk through the verses of James 5, and I think I can show you how it comes right from the text. Here's my definition. Patience is joyful endurance in the midst of difficulty or suffering while living to please God because of faith in God's final judgment. Let's unpack it first. Notice that a patient person is joyful. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Well, I hope you see that. The opposite of grumbling, which it says do not do, would be joy. So I believe when God prohibits grumbling there, He's also telling you He requires from us joy. But even if it's not clear enough to you right there in verse 9, if you would turn back a page, if you have your Bibles open to James 1 verse 2, it's even more clear here. And you'll see the connection between joy and patience right off the bat. My brethren, James 1 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. If you have something other than the New King James, the ESV translates the word patience there, steadfastness, the NIV perseverance. And it doesn't really matter. It's a whole collection of ideas that all really wrap around the same thing, which is this. We are to be joyful in our trials because God is producing in us patient endurance and steadfast hopefulness. Do you remember, do you remember what Israel did what God did to Israel when they grumbled and complained. It's over in 1 Corinthians 10. It's not a happy verse. If you have a Bible that highlights all the happy verses in orange, it's probably not highlighted because it says, Do not complain as they did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Obviously, God's pretty upset with the whole grumbling thing. Why is that? And the answer is really simple. Here it is. A grumbling spirit comes from a heart of unbelief. A grumbling spirit comes from a heart of unbelief. Patience, then, is the outworking of faith in the midst of trials. So when you have faith, and then you're in a trial, patience is what comes out. Because the opposite of that is grumbling. I, I, um, I really enjoy gardening. And so, uh, with Mr. Fuyan's help, we've gotten some uh, raised beds started and we, we, uh, we trounce around the neighborhood every Thursday and pick up everybody's grass clippings. We got, the other day we were out borrowing somebody's grass clippings and the guy comes running out the front door in his pajamas. Hey, what are you stealing my garbage cans for? So I had to explain to him we were just 
borrowing them to take the grass clippings to our house. But we're trying to make this raised bed because we enjoy gardening. And we're going to plant seeds next spring. Now, let's suppose that when we plant those seeds, what sprouts is not beautiful red tomatoes, but crabgrass. What would you say? You would say this. Yeah. You would say your seeds are defective, right? There's something wrong with your seeds. You thought they were tomato seeds. None of you would think, oh, Glenn planted tomato seeds, but he didn't use the right fertilizer, and so he got crabgrass. You know, hopefully none of you would think that. We'd need to go back to a little different course. If, the, if what comes out is crabgrass, then you know the seed is wrong. Well, listen, in the same way, if joy does not sprout from our hearts during the spring of trials, our seeds are not the pure ones of the Holy Spirit. Because joy is what comes out. Because the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts. Joy is the fruit of the seeds of faith. Whereas grumbling, in verse 9, is the fruit of unbelief. So a patient person is joyful. Then second, they are joyful in and as they endure in difficulty or suffering. Let's look starting at verse 8. You also be patient, establish or strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is, is at hand. Then skip to verse 10. My brethren, brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Did you notice there how God directly connects patience and endurance? You must understand that the Christian life is not a hundred yard dash. It's a 26-mile marathon. Now, all of us, I'm sure, have asked, why must I suffer? <laughs> why, why can't life just be easier? Now, God doesn't give any specific answer. There's no page we can turn to where we can say, okay, uh, you know, David Butler here, you've got the Acts 2-5 reason for that. And uh, Joel Kaiser, you've got the James... 1463 reason for that. That's not how it works. But here, the Bible does do this. God gives us lots of different kinds of reasons that difficulty comes into our lives. Sometimes we suffer because of sin. And it's not always our own, is it? We suffer covenantally. We suffer because of other people's sins, both in our families, in the church, and in the state. Sometimes we suffer to strengthen our faith. Sometimes, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, it is to equip us to be able better to comfort others. Sometimes it's simply to learn perseverance. Or it may be something to prove to you and to your neighbor who's watching you whether or not you are a kind of a fair-weather believer, a fair-weather friend of God. If some difficulty comes, will you run away? But the key is, listen, the key is not that you find a verse that explains why you are suffering. The key is this. It is to trust God even when the answers are not crystal clear. Because, listen, a true Christian has a supernatural ability from God to keep her composure even in the midst of difficulty. A true Christian has a supernatural, it's a work of the Spirit, in your heart so that you keep your composure even in the midst of difficulty. And that includes difficulty faced, and that's the third thing I'd notice on the definition, while living to please God. Verses 10 and 11, God tells us to consider the prophets 
and to consider Job. Let's just be honest. There are a lot of people who are interested in godliness because they hope it will help them escape difficulty. Right? And are they not disappointed when they've tried to do everything right and yet they still suffer? And so, lest any of us suppose this morning that religion is the way out of our trials, God reminds us here in verses 10 and 11 that the great people of faith are not, not those whose godliness allows them to escape suffering. The great people of faith are those whose godliness sustains them in the midst of suffering. Do you see the difference? It's all the difference in the world. The great people of faith are not those who are so godly they never have problems anymore. They never have troubles in their marriage. They never have difficulties with their kids. They never have circumstances that are unpleasant. They never get cancer. They never have sick family members. They never have difficulty. That's not what godliness is. Godliness sustains our joy and patient endurance in the midst of suffering. And God says, look at the prophets and Job as an example of that. And there are three things I see right off the bat as we think about the prophets and Job that can encourage and strengthen your heart. First, our hearts are established or encouraged and strengthened from knowing that our case is normal. Right? Even the great and godly people of God suffer. So please do not allow your trials to lead you to doubt God's sovereignty or to despair of His goodness. Here it is. There's just nothing special about your suffering. It's just normal. That's just the way life is for fallen people in a fallen world. And that encourages our hearts to realize there's not something strange going on in my life. Then second... Our hearts are established and strengthened from knowing that our case is not shameful. We easily fear, almost everybody I meet, easily fears when things go badly that we either are, those are either signs of God's disfavor or of our failure. Right? Isn't that what we naturally think? Oh, oh I, I got a speeding ticket. You know, I wonder, I'm, it's probably because I skipped my devotions this morning. Our minds instantly go to this. It's either a sign of God's disfavor or of our failure. And that's not true because God tells us here, He reminds us that the prophets, that Job, that even Christ Himself suffered while living to please God. Then third, our hearts are established and strengthened. First, because we find out our case is normal. Second, we find out our case is not shameful. And third, we're reminded that their example is for our imitation. When God makes us like them in suffering, we should be like them in patience. How do we do it? Well, the key is to change our thinking. The key is to change our thinking. Impatience flows from a heart which refuses to look to the future. Thus, the final part of our definition. So we've seen patience is joyful, endurance in the midst of difficulty or suffering, 
while living to please God, and then fourth, because of faith in God's final judgment. And that's really throughout the whole text. But just notice again in verse 7, he talks about the coming of the Lord. In verse 8, he talks about the Lord being near or at hand. In 9, he says the judge is standing at the door. And he tells us to think about a farmer's life in order to understand this. Have you considered the long-range planning that is required by a farmer? The commitment he makes. He really, a farmer really every year invests his entire life savings in seed and fuel and equipment and land, either purchasing or rental. And then he labors, he plows the land, he treats it, he fertilizes, he does all of this work. And then he puts those little seeds down into the... If you've never been a farmer, it's an amazing thing to go out there. We used to farm. And and you would drive the tractor, this giant four-wheel drive diesel behemoth with a huge uh, disc uh, thing behind I can't remember what it's called now. It's not the disc, but it's the thing after that that smooths the ground. And, and you would level hundreds of acres. As far as the eye can see, it's nothing but apparently dead dirt. And then you go and you take these little baby seeds. You stick them in, you cover them up, and then you wait. There's just nothing else to do. You just wait. I mean, you know, the farmers will, will uh, they'll, they'll do a little uh, equipment maintenance over the summer. I, I scouted cotton for, to pay for my college at Georgia Tech, and so each summer I'd come back and I, my job was to go out in the fields and count the bugs on the cotton plants. And you'd go out and you'd count them and do a statistical average, and then if it got above a certain level, the farmer was supposed to spray. Well... You could always find the farmers when you were done. They were either sitting at home and drinking coffee or sitting at the general store drinking coffee because there's just nothing to do. All summer long, you just wait. You can't go out there and say, well, I need a little bit of money now. Dig up a few of these plants and take them in. Doesn't work, does it? You have to wait till it's done. So consider the farmer. Consider how he must be patient. And so you also be patient. See, most of my trouble with impatient comes from being in a hurry when God is not, right? So how does this work out? Well, let me give you some examples. Before I do, let me give you an example from this morning. This will hopefully uh, help remind both me and you that I have not yet arrived uh, on this quite all of the way. This We've been trying to learn a little bit of Greek in our house, and so I've been doing Greek lessons with the kids and uh, obviously I'm finding out the reason for that is to embarrass me and teach me patience or uh, impatience, expose a heart of impatience. So this morning, actually, the Greek lesson went a little bit better than it had been. So I did the little Greek lesson at, for our, in our morning devotions uh, over breakfast. And then sweet Rebecca comes up to me afterwards. She said, Daddy, Greek class is so much more fun when you don't scream at us. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> uh, yeah, bless you, my child. <laughs> I'm sure it was not screaming. The um, if you want frustration, teach your children Greek. Woo <laughs> So what do you do 
when your son leaves the door open for the 30th time this week and you feel that frustration and anger and resentment welling up inside of you, how do you respond? Now, I would suggest to you that many of us fail, and I fail because so often what I do is I just read verse 7a. Therefore, be patient. And I preach that to myself, and I work on my heart with a new kind of moralism. The way to please God and man is just to be patient. And I try to screw up the courage for patience, and it gets worse and worse, doesn't it? What would God have us do? He'd have us think differently. Believe something different. So what he would do is, in this example, I would suggest, he would have me begin with verse 9. No, is it verse verse 11? The Lord is compassionate and merciful. So I remember the compassion and mercy of God and I delight to do the same for my kids. Not always without punishment or penalty. It doesn't mean because we're compassionate and merciful that we never have any consequences for behavior. But I have faith that my loving Father has orchestrated this very failure as an opportunity to disciple my children. So what do I do? If I'm going to grow in patience, I'm going to teach without blowing up. I might say something like this, My dear son, I love you. And because I love you, I must remind you of the $1 penalty that we've enacted that you have to pay me when you leave the door open. So I do this for you because I want to bless you because you have to learn to take responsibility for your actions. Now, God gives me the privilege of doing this for you as your parent because He loves you and He wants you to be disciplined in thinking and thinking and full of self-control. So here's what I want you to do. First, go shut the door that you left open. Second, go get the $1 that you owe me as a fine. And then third, let me pray for you that this would be a tool that God would use in your life for your maturity and your preparation to be a godly father and a loving husband. We think differently. I promise you, that will work a lot better than screaming at them. <laughs> I promise you my Greek lessons have not been good or effective when it ends in impatience. So what do you do about the turkey in the car who cuts you off and then curses you for being there and you feel that anger and vindictiveness welling up inside of you? Well, you might remember verse 9. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And so you could pray this way. Holy God... What that driver did is both ungodly and dangerous. I feel like he has attacked me unfairly. But I trust you to bring a better judgment than I possibly ever could. <laughs> you can get even with him in a way that I could not even begin to imagine. It may be that he will suffer in hell forever for his cursing and his attacking someone made in the image of God. Or you may use that to bring him to faith in Christ. But either way, will you bring glory to yourself and joy to me knowing that I can trust you to take care of me. And thank you for being my shield and defender that we didn't have a wreck just then. Thank you for guarding my heart and for the promise of perfect justice. So you can pray that. But it's hard to pray that after you've stamped on the pedal welled up a little righteous road rage, tried to run them off the road, cursed them yourself, turned all red in the face, 
and then looked over and your kids are there and their eyes are about that big saying, whoa, what happened to you? It's hard to preach the gospel then. But you have a judge who's standing at the door who can take care of it much better than you can. So what is patience? Patience is this. It is joyful endurance in the midst of difficulty or suffering while living to please God because of faith in God's final judgment. Then second, we must deny ourselves the opposite of patience. And I would like to put forward today that it is self-centeredness which is the opposite. Now obviously, impatience is the opposite of patience, right? But that doesn't really help us much. You don't allow people to define words by using the same word that they defined. So let's think back to the example of the poor driver and ask, what is my heart doing when it reacts in impatience? The guy cuts me off and curses me. How does my heart respond to that? Is this not what my heart says? I know best how to get even with this guy. I know what he deserves. I ought to be treated better. I have a right to be angry. Those are the thoughts of the heart. Those are what, in the passage preceding the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 21 and 22, remember, at the beginning it says, the flesh wars against the Spirit, the Spirit wars against the flesh. They're having a fight one with the other. You have these desires that are trying to destroy you. Those are the desires of my heart. And what I'd ask you to notice in those desires is that I is the subject of every sentence. But I find something fascinating when I look at verses 7 to 11 of James 5. The Lord, or God, is mentioned in every single verse. Isn't that interesting? See, in order to produce patience, my thoughts must be turned away from myself and to my Savior. My thoughts must be turned away from myself and to my Savior. My flesh wants to think only of self. The Spirit wants me to think first of God. So the Spirit teaches us patience by convincing you to ask this question, what is God doing in the midst of my suffering? Friends, God never says that you're not suffering. You don't learn patience by when things are difficult, singing zippity-doo-dah, zippity-ay, my oh my, what a wonderful day. It's not pretending that there's no suffering. It's instead seeing God in every verse of it. What is God doing in the midst of your suffering? Why did He bring it? And what is He accomplishing in our lives? See, we deny ourselves the opposite of patience by refusing to give in to those sinful thoughts which put self at the center of our circumstances. Then third, we must be cautious of the counterfeit of patience. We must be cautious of the counterfeit of patience, and I would suggest it is fatigue or, or laziness <clears throat> or fear. William Wilberforce was converted in 1785. Almost immediately, he saw the sin of the slave trade. So he began using every means at his disposal to fight against something which 
he saw as clearly displeasing to God. Now, what I find interesting about Wilberforce is this. He never, listen, he never argued for patience in ending the slave trade. It it was too evil. It was something that was so heinous, so great and evil, such rebellion against God. He never said we must slowly enact a change. He said this, it's got to end and it has to end now. And then he suffered setback after setback after setback. But listen, through all of that, he patiently endured. And so it was not until the Abolition Act on March 25th of 1807 that trade became illegal in the British ships. For 22 years, William Wilberforce had remained steadfast in hopefulness. But even then, slavery was still practiced in the British colonies. It was just outlawed on the ships. So he continued to work. He continued to preach. And he continued to fight the good fight of faith. It was not until July 26, 1883, when Parliament agreed that they would pay the farmers who were using slaves for the loss of slave labor labor, that the practice was effectively ended in, in the British world. And Wilberforce said this, Thank God that I have lived to witness a day in which England is willing to give 20 million sterling for the abolition of slavery. Three days later, Wilberforce died. But his life was known as one of patient endurance. I find an interesting contrast between him and his life with some of the pastors in the Presbyterian churches in the South during the similar years. Though some of them would admit that the practice of slavery was clearly a violation of the law of God, they insisted upon patience in the dismantling of slavery. Why? Is it because they were patient men? It was not. It was because they feared losing their pulpits and they feared a fight which must come. See, Wilberforce never suggested patience with a sinful practice. (laughs) But he was patient in holding forth that fight until he endured and saw the change. Many others called for patience at every turn, but they endured nothing because they were unwilling to suffer for what was right. One is patience. The other is a cheap counterfeit. And so the question I would suggest to you this morning is which one will we choose when enduring suffering is necessary for the work of God? We must carefully be cautious of the counterfeit of patience. And then fourth and finally, we must actively cultivate true patience. What do we do when we find ourselves with grumbling, murmuring, complaining, impatient hearts? Well, as I've mentioned, I believe the solution begins with thinking differently. I am impatient because I know what I want. (laughs) And I know the best way to get there. And I know the timing that there should be for arrival. And then I find God frustrating my desires. 
And so in my thinking, God is hindering what should be done, what could be done. He seems to stand in the way of my joy and progress. Well, I must believe something different about God. I must believe that God... You must believe that God is for you. You must believe that God loves you more than you love yourself. I know that's hard to imagine, but He does. You must believe that God has given you this very trial for your joy and your blessing. Friends, you must believe this, that God has orchestrated this event, these circumstances, because He wants to do something great, listen, in your life, in the process, in the pain, in this period of your days on earth. You must believe that patience is both good for your soul and a blessing to be sought for. That's what has to change in our thinking. And I would tell you, Jesus did exactly that. Jesus patiently endured the cross for us so that He might produce in us the fruit of patience. Jesus patiently endured the cross for us that He might produce the fruit of patience in us. Listen to the word endurance in Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you also will not grow weary or faint-hearted. He pastored in the Church of England for 54 years. He began his ministry in 1782 when the bishop in the Church of England appointed him to be the pastor of this particular congregation. Now, unfortunately for him, the congregation hated him. In fact, they completely opposed having him as the pastor. Not because he was a bad pastor or preacher, but because he was one of those newfangled evangelicals. (laughs) He believed the Bible. And he believed that God's people were to grow in holiness and to participate in world missions. So for 12 years, the congregation would not allow him to preach the Sunday evening evening sermon. In the Church of England at that day, once the bishop appointed you to the congregation, when the bishop came in and appointed Pastor Phil to preach the service, the bishop then required that he be the one to preach the Sunday morning sermon. But if the congregation did not like him, they could go get someone else 
to preach the evening service. So every week for 12 years, that is 600 weeks of sermons. The congregation insisted that the pastor sit in the congregation while someone else preached. That wasn't all. Back in that day, they had these pews and they had doors on them. And the congregation came on Sunday morning and locked the doors to the pews. And so you could not physically get into the place where you were supposed to sit. So for those same 12 years, the only people that came to church were those who were not part of the congregation and they came and they stood in the aisles. Six hundred sermons. This brother preached, Pastor Phil, six hundred sermons with nobody in the pews. <laughs> there was a few people in lining this aisle and then they came around the back and they came down both sides. How do you survive in that kind of discouragement? Here's what he wrote. In this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. Notice the link there between faith and patience. Faith, the believing something different about God. The passage of Scripture which subdued and controlled, I love those two words, subdued and controlled my mind was this, the servant of the Lord must not strive. It was painful indeed to see the church, with the exception of the isles, almost forsaken. But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would, on the whole, be as much good as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. This comforted me many Many times, when without such a reflection, I should have sunk under my burden. Rather than growing impatient with God and grumbling against people, Charles Simeon saw God's hand in the suffering. He believed something different than his flesh wanted to believe <laughs> and against the lies that his flesh wanted so much to hold on to. He believed differently about God than his flesh would have liked and so he served for 12 years with joyful endurance. When Simeon lay dying, he ended up ministering there for 54 years. Later, as he lay dying, the illness was dragging on. You know, sometimes illness does that. You're ready to just die or be healed. He didn't get either one. The illness drug on and on and on. And of course, that would be a time for impatience with God's ways. Instead, this is what he said. Infinite wisdom has arranged the whole with infinite love. And infinite power enables me to rest upon that love. I am in a dear Father's hands. All is secure. 
When I look to Him, I see nothing but faithfulness and immutability and truth. I have the sweetest peace. I cannot have more peace. Simeon could die with patient endurance and steadfast hopefulness because he had trained himself in the hope and promise of the Word of God so that he could take hold of the infinite power and wisdom and riches and treasures of God and use those to conquer the unbelief that welled up in his heart in impatience. See, by the testing of his faith, he found that the Lord is merciful and compassionate. Will we do the same? Father God, we thank you that you are compassionate and merciful. We admit that we forget that when circumstances go differently than we would have them. We pace to and fro and say that we are in a hurry, even though you are not. And we doubt your favor and blessing upon us. Would you teach us to look to the prophets and to Job and to the rest of the scriptures, including James, and to the faithful women and men who have gone before us and who even now live around us and see that you are exactly what the scriptures reveal, that you are the God who can be trusted, sovereign over all things, the one in whom we might place our faith and never be disappointed. Lord God, I ask for each sister and brother here this day that they would go out with great joy in whatever trials they face. Some are great today. Some may feel great even if they are of lesser significance. But each of us is tempted with unbelief and impatience. So lead us into your truth and into the way everlasting so that we might with joy endure whatever difficulties and trials come our way as we strive to do what pleases you because we know that you are near at hand and you are coming again to rescue your people and to save us forever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name. God's people say, Amen. Amen.